Amen. We've been talking about union with Christ. We've titled this series Resolutions for Rootedness because we're in a season of the calendar year where people make resolutions. Now we're a month out and I don't hear anyone saying anything about that anymore. But usually a resolution is for some kind of means of self-improvement, some betterment, some enhancement of our resume or our productivity or efficiency or our demeanor, our stature, our looks. But one of the things that Christianity holds out to people who fail the resolutions is this wonderful, mysterious, and markedly powerful wedding of us with Jesus, and it says in the scriptures, we are one with him. We are in him, and he is in us. And so we have these resolutions for dwelling in rootedness, being rooted and established in God himself, for whom we were made, and who is actually remaking us. So the whole endeavor doesn't depend on our cleverness or how many Tim Ferriss episodes we listen to, how many self-help books we read, that there is a power from the heavens that is active in us that can increase our loves and redirect our affections, can catapult us out of the labyrinth of ourselves that we get stuck in. And today, we're going to look at how the mission or the vocation that we have been given actually serves to squelch the shame that tends to disable us. We've been given a task, we've been given a reorientation that is such that all the things that we get embarrassed about that tend to make us shrink, that tend to make us protect ourselves, that tend to make us hide and wilt like an unwatered flower. This mission, this vocation that is integral to our being one in Christ can actually squelch all that in surprisingly liberating ways. We see the Apostle Paul in prison, writing a thank you letter while in chains. Most of you, if you've been to prison, do not put that on your Twitter bio. For most of us, going to prison would be a shameful thing. Some of us may have been there. Redemption happens. Shame can be cleansed. But it's not the kind of thing you'd want to advertise. And here we have the Apostle Paul saying that his being in prison is something he's rejoicing about because it's become clear to everyone in the palace guard that he is there for the defense of the gospel, which the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ is the reigning administration more powerful than the governments of Vladimir Putin or Donald Trump or any other kingdom of this world, the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And Paul was a herald of this message. All things were being made new, and so could people as well, merely by linking up with this new king. 
And as we're listening to Paul in what would ordinarily be a shameful situation, it's worth pondering our own shameful experiences or our experiences of shame or put it in another way, the things that we feel embarrassed about. Shame's a complicated thing, but we spend a great number of hours in a day trying to avoid feeling embarrassed. Or at least 78% of you do. There are things that you are associated with in your life that you wish were not the case, and they bring you some level of embarrassment, some level of shame, some, something that you want to spin, adjust, hide, or run away from. So you might, you might be associated with a family, your family, where you're thinking, why am I part of this family? Why couldn't I have their family? A few of you have thought that before. Why is my family like this? Why do I have this set of parents and this set of grandparents? Why are we like this? Is every Thanksgiving and every home like this, you might have wondered? Yes, it is. You might be embarrassed about your family. You might be embarrassed about the school you were once associated with or presently associated with. You might be embarrassed about the car you drive or the house you live in the kind of work you do, the amount of money you make. All these things might be a source of embarrassment. You might, you might have uh, bad skin, or your smile might be crooked and you don't want to show your teeth because you feel embarrassed. You might weigh too much or too little. I've had both experiences. And so what happens is, as you well know, is that if you're really embarrassed about something in particular, if you feel a great deal of shame, exposure, unworthiness, dirtiness, inadequacy, whenever these things are approached, then what you're going to do is you're going to be constantly refusing to take risks. You're going to be constantly refusing to, as Brene Brown would say, and this is the only reference I'll make to her in this talk, Show up. You'll refuse to show up. Because showing up in a difficult situation, speaking up when you'd rather remain silent, or remaining silent when you want to defend yourself, these are treacherous things. You might be misunderstood. You might be rejected. You might be scorned or laughed at. It's better to play it safe. The embarrassments we feel, the shame that we experience, it's a shrinking condition. It's a hiding affliction. It's where we wilt from perceived unworthiness or from anticipated scorn or rejection. It cripples us. And so it's interesting to me to think about a problem that cripples so much of our lives because I don't think we want to be crippled. We don't want to walk away from conversations feeling the sting of exposure, of wondering how we could have said what we said and wonder what they think of us. We'd like to be free of that, I think. But we come to the wrong conclusions. But here we have the Apostle Paul who is taking a situation where embarrassment would be normal, where shame is actually being encouraged 
action is being taken so that he will feel ashamed and other people will join him in it or will try to avoid it themselves. And he's working out union with Christ and how it affects shame, embarrassment, and how his union with Christ has given him a mission that squelches all of those things that would cripple him. So he says at the beginning of of verse 12, I want you to know what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard that I've been put here as a defense of the, uh, I'm in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of God more courageously and more fearlessly. Uh, If you're paying attention, and I know it's hard to, that's weird. Wait, that's not what's supposed to happen. You don't put people in prison to encourage the thing that you're putting them in prison about. I'm just going to, this is basic prison 101. You put people in prison to discourage the thing that the person did. So you say, look here, you don't want to be like this guy. You'd never want to be like this gal. This is shameful what they've done. They're in prison for this. And Rome has made a decision. This man has a dangerous message. He has a message that usurps all our civil religion. It says that Caesar's not Lord. Christ is Lord. That the man hanging on the tree has the final say in human affairs. And he's alive. And he captures men and women and little boys and little girls with benevolence. And he remakes them. And he alters them. And he makes them courageous. And he gives them a sense of purpose. And he makes them clean so they're not disabled or contaminated or feeling diseased anymore. And he lets them live forever. And Paul is announcing this new political administration, this new worldwide empire that's being set up. And the Roman powers that be say this message is too sadistic. Seditious, not sadistic. Seditious. Seditious. It's going to undermine what we're up to. It's a dangerous message. So here's what we'll do. We'll beat the tar out of this fella. That'll teach everybody. If you say these things about Jesus, that is dishonorable. You will get whelps on your back and cauliflower ear from being pummeled. And your lips will be split from being punched. And you will be in isolation and in chains. That'll stop everybody from doing it. People will feel the shame of it. And they'll say, we would like to retire and not show up and not participate publicly with this because we don't want those things to happen to us. That's what's supposed to have happened. And Paul says, here's what's cool. And I can only imagine the certain giddiness that must happen for him. While he's there in chains, not able to do what he's called to do to preach. He's in a shameful situation. It makes it as part of the Bible. And he says, my chains have actually not squelched the mission of the brothers who preach about Jesus. It's actually enhanced their mission. 
It squelched shame instead. They've become more courageous. See, that shame makes you obey the sense that you're not worthy to do a thing. You need to protect yourself. Courage says, the thing being done is worth doing, even if it costs me something. So I will not obey the disabling shame. They become courageous and fearless in this mission that's been entrusted to them to be carriers of Christ to the world, through their words and through their work, through their, wor- uh, through their deeds and through their manner and their care. It's a rather remarkable turn of events. This happens throughout church history. Whenever people try to put down Christianity, thinking that'll earn them, it pops up all the stronger. The roundup of persecution doesn't do a thing for the weed of Christianity that grows and grows because Christ will not be deterred. But so what is this mission? We've just alluded to it. This mission that squelches shame. Well, Paul keeps going. I'm going to continue to rejoice, even though there are some people preaching Christ and some people, some people doing it nefariously out of bad motives because they're trying to stir up trouble. Some people doing it genuinely. I don't really care. I just rejoice that people are hearing about Christ. Now, that's an aspiration for us because most of us aren't that... Uh, comfortable with uh, being imprisoned and losing our lives and things like that. Not yet. Maybe one day. But he goes on, and, and, he, and he helps us see that his mission, and this is a mission that's given to us, even though we have particular callings, and we're not called to be apostles, our mission is carrying Christ to the world for its joy and progress in the faith. For little Christ, that's how C.S. Lewis put it, and this Listen to what Paul says. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help given by the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And if I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yeah, what shall I choose? I don't know. To be with Christ is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. Now, is that narcissism? Or is that a scary confidence that the life of another is operational in him. So much so that he forgets about himself. So much so that he can say, you know, it would be so much better to be out of this painful existence where all I experience is humiliation and <clears throat> a building resume of sorrows and disappointments and beatings, starvation, hunger, shipwrecks. These are the kinds of things Paul says characterize his life It'd be so much better to be with Christ in the paradise of God. But you know what? For you, I'm convinced I need to remain. For your joy. For your progress in the faith. I'm so, I'm convinced. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm going to stay. So that through my being with you, your joy in Christ might overflow on account of me. He believes that Jesus is operational in him. And therefore, that good things are going to come when he wakes up in the morning. He's in prison. 
Most of you are only in a prison of your own making. Imprisoned by shame. Imprisoned by embarrassment. But what what a cataclysmic turnaround could happen if you started your day when you got dressed, clothing yourself in Christ, remembering, I exist for the joy and the progress of others today. I exist as a carrier of Christ. I love it that Ann Stewart... In our Lula Lake congregation, he has a great prayer meeting on Thursday mornings. Anybody ever want to come? And when Anne's reporting the kindness of people in the congregation, she says, I've got my own Huber service. Is that how you say it? Uber. Uber. It's Uber, Anne. Because I got people who'll just carry me everywhere. That Marilyn Griffith, she's something else. She'll carry me. She's carried me to Vanderbilt. She's carried me to the doctor's office. She'll carry me anywhere. I got people who'll carry me anywhere. And I love it that that's how she talks about getting a ride. They carry me. And I hope you know, I, when I use the voice, I admire Southern voices. I like voices, and I love Ann. I'm not making fun of her. That's how she talks. She's from Skirum, Alabama. But she gets carried. And so does Christ with you. That's what Paul expects for, to me, to live is Christ. So if I go on living, here's what I expect. Fruitful labor. The stuff I'm going to do is not meaningless. The shame in your life will say, what's the point of anything you're doing? Why risk yourself? Why expose yourself? Someone's going to think bad of you. And Paul says, the life I live in the body... I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And my life is fruitful. That's what I expect. And that's not an apostolic expectation alone. It's an expectation for anyone who trusts Jesus Christ. Apart from me, you can't do nothing. But if you remain in me, and I remain in you, you will bear much fruit. God says in Isaiah, your fruitfulness comes from me. Rankin Wilbur says of that John 15 passage, it does seem like there's a lot of things we can do apart from Christ, even though he says we can't. But the thing we can't do is live. You can't live a Godward life. You can't live a God-infused life. You can't live a, a God-cooperating life. You can't live joining God in his intention to reclaim and refurbish this world and bring reconciliation to it unless you're connected to Christ. And when you are, you count on carrying him everywhere you go. Now, if you think, I'm carrying Christ, that's my mission. I'm bringing Christ to bear. And as C.S. Lewis could say like this, the church, I doubt, has any other purpose but to bring men to Christ and to make little Christ, to bring women and children, people, Bring them to Christ and make them little Christ. And that's what Paul's saying for, to me, to live is Christ. God's intention is that you become like him. And in so doing, become like yourself, finally, for the first time in your life. The things you get embarrassed about. Do you know why you get embarrassed about them? Because you think that what your life is, is about the promotion of your own honor. That's what gets me. Any situation I walk around in, and I'm embarrassed, I give a bad sermon, 
Or I think I did. I mean, as if. I have a meeting with somebody and I fear that I said something foolish and I am scalded by the embarrassment of it. And it's not because I thought I dishonored Jesus. It's because I think someone might think I'm a wackadoo or an imbecile or insensitive or mean, too harsh or too gentle or too stupid. I don't want to be stupid. You don't always get what you want, but you try sometimes. You finish the song. But when we think we're protecting ourselves, then there's a lot to be embarrassed about. And that's why there's a good goal for all of us here who are connected to Christ. The goal of learning to have an unembarrassed heart. That's how Peggy Noonan described Governor Kasich from Ohio. Unlike other politicians she talked to back in the presidential race, he was talking about opiate addiction and his compassion for these these mothers who'd lost sons to drug addiction. And she said he had a different kind of characteristic when he was talking to me. He, he was a man of an unembarrassed heart. It stands out in an age of cynicism, in an age of snark, in an age of self-righteousness and putting people in their place. To have somebody who will say things and not worry if they seem foolish or too soft or too naive. He had an unembarrassed heart. We sometimes think that the solution for our deep embarrassment is to make sure we never do anything embarrassing. you realize this? The solution to feeling embarrassed after a bad sermon is never give a bad sermon again. The solution to doing a bad presentation at the office or someone getting in your car and it being so dirty and you going, ah! Is to make sure my car is either no one ever gets in my car again and I tint the windows... Or I make sure that thing's clean and nobody can ever see it. Those are two of the options. Or I could think, but for me to live as Christ, and it turns out I'm not so uh, tidy as I thought. But what I guess I'll try to do is love them and not be so concerned about defending my own honor because my reputation and my honor, my salvation depends on another. We spend a lot of time trying to manage the opinions of others. And even when you're trying to do it, you never succeed. You don't know what they think about you, and you know what you can't control, what they think about you. You never can. For Paul, the script script is flipped. And he starts to say, you know, the stuff the world says, be attached to this, and then you'll feel honor. Don't be attached to this, and you'll feel shame. He flips it on his head, and he says, that stuff's stupid. It helps him to have an unembarrassed heart. It helps him to know, I'm going to be courageous in situations. I'm going to speak up about Christ. You know what that might mean? It might mean that someone thinks I'm crazy. It might mean that someone thinks I'm ridiculous. If I show acts of care, if you're a teenager and you show acts of care to some uh, goofy kid, some kid that the other kids don't like, you might look funny to them. You might be rejected by standing with rejects. And Paul says, that is honorable. Because we get our honor by our associations. And when you're connected by association to the king of kings and lord of lords and the destroyer of death and the bringer of immortality to light and the one who cleans you and decontaminates you and accepts you and you look forward to a regal welcome 
You have honor before God. Who cares if you have dishonor before men? That's what he suggests. And he says you will have dishonor before people. That's the part of Christianity that most of us don't like. We're out of time. 50 years ago, not as much. We're out of time right now. The more Christian you are, the less congratulations you will receive. You're not going to get letters of commendation from the president for your admirable acts of self-sacrifice. Nobody in our world is going to commend you for being Christian, for carrying Christ. But you know who will? The one with whom you'll live forever. He said, you're clean. You're mine. I'm with you. I won't forsake you. There will come a vindication. You're not going to be ashamed. I promise you. All the people who think you're goofy for following Jesus, one day, and they say, Jesus, Jesus, and one day, when he is brilliantly streaming his glory and people's eyes are being burned out because he's so bright, magnificently beautiful, they're not going to be thinking, huh, I, don't, I wonder if he's real. And you're going to see, as you're vindicated, oh, he's real, healingly real, welcoming, welcomingly real. You are carriers of Christ. And as you don't live to promote your own honor, but to promote his, it can become a reorienting thing each situation that you walk into. Okay, Lord, my instinct here is to want to protect myself, but I ask that you will bring joy to them through me. So you can talk to him, and you can ask others to pray that for you, because Paul thinks prayer is something. I know that by your prayers and the help given by the Holy Spirit, what has turned out this happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He thinks that your prayers will actually activate activity from the heavens, that the Spirit of God will intersect and collide with your actions and your words and the happenings around you as people pray for you. Even that, you have to risk embarrassment. You, most of you don't ask somebody to pray for you unless you're really desperate. What if you started before you got really desperate? You had a group of people that you're asking, will you pray that I will not be so preoccupied with myself, that I'll have an unembarrassed heart, and so that I might live bound up with the affection of Christ Jesus, as Paul says he has for the Philippians, that will compel me to move towards others? Sometimes I watch football games. I have seen a few sporting events. I have participated in some sporting events in my life. And I was watching a football game. This is how I close with this. A, a big rival game. And our, our defensive back went up and he landed in a most horrendous way. It was sickening how his ankle, what it did. And his, his mother, in that moment, so far as I remember, she violated all the rules of teenage mothering. In sports, when your child is injured, you do not go to them. You might embarrass them. When they're hurting, you just let them hurt there. Let the coaches tend to it, these, these tender men. They'll, they'll do it. So you just have to sit there as your heart beats out of its chest. <clears throat> And the pain that you know they're feeling pulsates through your body. Well, this mama saw how gnarly the injury was. 
and did no calculation so far as I could tell. She just went there. She went there because affection made her override any potential embarrassment, any potential scorn. She had a mission. I, in love, have to get to that injured boy. If you want an unembarrassed heart, ask God to give you the affection of Christ Jesus. Practice beginning your days and your meetings and your work and your care about your children, your care about your home by saying, Lord, make my life a joy to others. Let me bring progress in the faith to others. Let them overflow with joy because of my service to them. And let me not need to defend or protect myself. Let me exalt Christ. Let me honor him, whether I'm living and whether I'm dying. Let me be like a mama whose Herculean love overwhelms in the moment of embarrassment any embarrassment that would make me shrink back. Amen. Let's pray.